Good morning. The reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you that you have made each of us exactly how we are meant to be, um, that you make no mistakes. I thank you that we are all different. Thank you that uh, we each have our own strengths, our own gifts, our own weaknesses. And I thank you that you made us as a body of believers to depend on each other and to need each other. I just pray that we would never get to the point of, of feeling that we are self-sufficient, but we would realize our, our need for you first and foremost um, and our need for each other that we would rely on each other. And so I just pray that in this way that this would, would honor you and glorify you as you intended. And I pray that our, our worship and praise of you this morning would glorify you as well. So in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, John. The office can be dismissed. Even in the body of Christ, there is an appendix. Hopefully nobody gets removed. Well, I want to tell you a story about California. Some Californians take time to prepare for disasters, like an earthquake. Maybe they'd gather a couple gallons of water, maybe a dozen cans of food, maybe some ammo, 
You probably caught on Californians don't know how to prepare for a natural disaster. They would not survive for very long. My assumption is that many of us in this room have more than a couple gallons of water, more than a couple dozen cans of food. I'm not going to ask you how much ammo you have. You might have a deer or two in the freezer. Vermonters, contrary to Californians, know how to prepare. A huge snowstorm or a power outage, a flooded river can seclude us for days. And many of you could probably just survive off of the land and what you have for six months. But how much is too much preparation? Your boss probably wouldn't appreciate it if you never came to the office because you were gathering stuff to store in your basement. Your wife probably wouldn't like it if she couldn't afford to buy groceries because you kept buying ammo. You must have a balance between preparing for the worst but also working hard. And so in Nehemiah 3, we will see this balance of God's people working together to accomplish great things, but we'll also see them preparing for the worst and while being steadfast in the midst of their adversity. So working together and being steadfast together. Would you pray with me? And you can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 3. Father, as your word says in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So God, we acknowledge that uh, those words are easier uh, read than acted upon at times. And so, God, would you give us a trust in you, in your covenant, in your character, in your promises, and for your Son, who is the Christ, who died in our place for our sins. God, we thank you for this text this morning. Would you help us to understand it and apply it and be transformed by it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will read. We will read Nehemiah chapter three shortly. Uh, we're God's people. They work together in chapter three, and we'll see as well that they are steadfast together in chapter four. In chapter three, we'll see that all of God's people they work together. As I read it, you look for some of these names. Look for some of these titles. You have high priests and merchants. You have Levites and regular dudes. Yes, dudes is in the Hebrew. Uh, rulers and priests, goldsmiths, perfumers. Everybody worked together. We will see their strategy. They go counterclockwise around the city. Repeated often, they were next to each other. Systematically and collectively, they completed the work that was before them. They were intentionally unified. They completed about 40 sections of the wall simultaneously, and it was done quickly. And it's pretty remarkable. They might have had some pre-existing Vermonters there helping them get this all done. Then what could have been chaos? They were committed and they were unified. So I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 3. We'll read through the whole chapter. You can pray for me and my pronunciation of some of these names. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, 
and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the sons of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshelam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabaz. Meshezabel repaired. And next to them Zadok and the sons of Banna repaired. And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but the nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshalam, the son of Basadeah, repaired the gates of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marianthite, the men of Gibeon, and the, of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah and the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramoth, repaired, opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Heshabaniah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Hiram, and Heshab, the son of... Yep. Repaired. Another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to the him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hayden and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a hundred cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth. Hekarim repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kal Hosem, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsur, repaired to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pools, as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Reim, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzvah, prepared another section opposite the ancient or ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, prepared another section from the buttress to the door in the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, prepared another section from the door from the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men in the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired outside, opposite their house. And then Azariah, the son of Maasiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his house. And after him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress in the corner. Palav, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king in the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living and Ophel repaired to the opposite point of the water gate on the east in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired 
another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired, opposite the east gate repaired. And him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. And after him, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, repaired, opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired, as far as the house of the temple servants, and the merchants opposite the muster gate, and the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber and the corner of the sheep gate the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired so how many of you would skip that chapter in your Bible reading plan Nehemiah lists an eclectic group that was a rhetorical question Dave there will be a test on the places and the people that were listed in that next weekend well in this church called Cornerstone we have nurses we have doctors business owners people who have never owned their own company who've been at their own company for decades. College students, married, single, empty nesters, no kids, seven kids, retired, tired, from small towns, from big cities, military, maybe some pacifists, Californians, Wisconsiners, is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Okay, good. New Hampshireites, I don't even know, and many other Vermonters. We have an eclectic group here. Most importantly, we see in Nehemiah 3, this eclectic group in the text worked together. And it's beautiful in the text, and it's beautiful in this church. Like I mentioned in the announcements, we have VBS coming up. And one of my favorite things to do in VBS is to see the men get those massive tents together and put them together. And we all kind of pull all these parts out and we scratch our heads because we didn't take good notes of how the tent came apart last year. And we figure it out. We put the puzzle together. We all work together. And... It, we had a friend named Sue who watched us last year and who helped to take it down this year. And she made us some nice plans so that when we put it up in a few months, hopefully it doesn't take us an hour to just figure out what we are looking at. Hopefully it'll be easier. But we get to work together. We get to work together like the Jews did in Nehemiah chapter 3. Next to each other, side by side, for the glory of God. The Jews worked together. They progressed in their unity, and everyone took their part. Various gifts empowered by God to work together. And the work on the walls provided Israel with a sense of identity, a sense of distinctiveness, reversing the humiliation that their prior sins caused them to need to rebuild this wall based on the destruction that came as a result of their sin. They're reversing the consequences of their prior actions. And imagine the confidence that they had as they see brick by brick by brick, section by section by section growing, seeing the walls rise up. The days ahead might be hard. They probably will be harder than they are today for the church. And we can learn from these Jews in Nehemiah as they were unified because their buddy Sanballat comes back and he returns in chapter 4. The opposition intensifies and while they worked well together, the unity becomes the foundation for being steadfast together. 
They worked together and they were steadfast together. Look what happens in chapter 4. I won't read the entire chapter in this go. We'll look at that first section. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of the rubbish that burned and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And do not let their sin be blotted out from the sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built a wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Let's stop right there. So no sooner than the work started, the opposition returned. Nehemiah shows us a real test of a leader. As a leader, when faced with a crisis, reacts to the opposition. And the first opportunity to this or for this steadfastness comes in their prayer, but also their perseverance in the face of these threats. Sanballat's crew was angry. Literally, they burned with anger. This is the same word anger that we see all the way back into Genesis when Cain burned with anger towards his brother Abel and he murdered him. They were enraged or vexed. They were indignant, thinking that there was an injustice, that this wall was being reconstructed. And they were also jeering or mocking or making fun of the Jews. Nobody protests in a calm and collected way these days, do they? No matter who they're against. Anger is often the world's response to God's work because it challenges the worldviews that the world has and the world values. I was with a couple of you on Friday and we talked about how our world is primarily against what they're against, not what they're for. We're really good at being against things. This rage here is not against the people of God that we see in the text so much as it is against God himself. When you see protesters in our world, both sides tend to be yelling at each other. I have a couple photos that I found. Maybe remind you of things you've seen on the news. Maybe the next one. And the next one. Here's some reminders of what it looks like over the last couple years, is it not? Nehemiah doesn't respond like this. Thanks, Kent. He doesn't even talk to Sanballat. He doesn't explain, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Who does Nehemiah talk to? He talks to God. Verse 5. Nehemiah's dependence on his sovereign God is never more evident than in his prayers. And Nehemiah's prayers are what theologians call imprecatory. They aren't directed to the enemies of God. They are directed to God to do something about the enemies. Turn back their taunt. Do not cover their guilt. Let them be blotted out. They have provoked you, God, to anger. Is it okay to pray like this? Like, Nehemiah is writing scripture, so I think it's okay for him. But what about us? Psalm 79, 12. 
laps, is what the psalmist says. Return sevenfold into the laps of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Nehemiah hates their sin, but he does not repay evil for evil. He's saying, God, you deal with it because they have sinned not against us, but against you. Because Nehemiah knows what God says in Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And so Nehemiah isn't acting. He's not yelling back at them. He's petitioning to God to act. He isn't asking permission to take personal vengeance on them. Nehemiah has a zeal for God and for God's honor. But Nehemiah knows that only God can deal decisively and perfectly with this situation. So God, help the work. Stop these enemies of ours who are your enemies. Last week I mentioned Mid-Vermont Christian School. Well, they made the news again this week. Their girls' basketball team forfeited their basketball game because there was a boy on the opposing team's girls' team and they didn't want to play against them for good reason. So please keep praying for that school. If you, any of you want to join me and Cal, we're going to host a table at their auction and banquet. There's no charge for you. If you want to come and join us, we would, happy, we would happily have you join us at their auction. We're talking to our kids about the news and the things that they had heard at school. And one of my kids asked, well, isn't it unloving to the boy on that other team to be singled out by everybody? The media picked up on the story, of course, as the adversaries want to make the school look poorly. But it's not unloving to stand for God's created order. The boy is choosing what he wants. The school that he goes to is choosing what they want to allow this boy to play. And Mid-Vermont is choosing what they want and saying, we won't play against you. We won't go against the way that God's created order is set out in Genesis. But the school didn't need to be hostile in return, and they weren't. As I checked some of the comments on social media, Kristen and I did one night, seeing what the world is saying about them, and you don't need to go look them up, and it's not pleasant things. They're not friendly. They're like Sanballat to Israel. But Nehemiah, he stands up to the opposition by building the wall in verse 6. In the face of all this, what does verse 6 says? So we built the wall. The insults wouldn't stop, but their first response to the opposition is together. They prayed and persevered in the face of insults. More happens in verse 7 if you want to pick up there. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard on the, as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come against them, among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, Ten 
times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I took, looked, and I rose, and said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So together they prayed and persevered in the face of the insults, and they also prayed and pondered the Lord in the face of the threats. Sanballat is still angry. The anger and insults that didn't hinder the work, but the opposition renews, and now it's starting to come from all sides. In verse 9, Nehemiah prays again. Remember last week I said, Nehemiah is a leader from the knees up. It was natural for Nehemiah to regard prayer and action as necessary for, and complementary to face a developing level of this threat. They didn't just pray and ponder with blind faith. They weren't like the little boy that says, you can't see me when he covers his eyes. They set up guards. The preparation is not just storing food in the basement. They get the ammo loaded into the magazines. And as a leader, Nehemiah prayed. He remembered God, strong and mighty. Israel, we're building the wall for Him. And good management includes trusting. But it came with precaution as well. They were faithful. They were ready. They were ready to take arms and do whatever they needed for whatever would come their way. And so Nehemiah put people on guard. Those same people that built the wall together side by side were the same people who joined together to prepare and to protect God's people side by side from all walks of life. In verse 14, Nehemiah declares the most repeated phrase, in the, sorry, the most repeated command in all of the Bible. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. Christian, you need not Fear God. God's wrath is not on those who believe the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But for the non-Christian, there should be a lot of fear. For God is holy and just, and He must have wrath and punishment and discipline and judgment for sin. The Christian is declared righteous in God's eyes. The non-Christian is not. And so Jesus, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, they're already condemned, bound to everlasting torment. This command is not to fear in the face of the battle. This command is well known to the people of Israel. At the Red Sea, Egypt behind them, Moses exclaimed this in Exodus chapter 14. Moses says this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. While overlooking the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land before Moses passes away, while there were inhabitants in the land that they were going to go need to go conquer, Moses declared this again in Deuteronomy. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. 
Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. And as Joshua, the protege of Moses, he then takes the people of Israel into the promised land. He reminds them of this before they go in Joshua chapter 1. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Together they pray. Together they persevere in the face of insults. Together they pray again, and together they ponder the Lord in the face of the threats. But they also protected themselves. They didn't fight with each other. They're good at that too. They fought together against a common foe. In verse 14, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Church, we don't fight against each other. We fight with each other. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants returned on, or worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon on the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand." So together they pray and they persevere in the face of insults. Together they pray and they ponder the Lord in the face of their threats. But they also prepare for the worst. Trusting God will protect them. Sambalot was angered. He was disappointed by the work of God's people. And Nehemiah says that God has now frustrated Sambalot's plans. Everything has backfired on him. And the enemies of God. Because the people kept on working. Nehemiah had to cut the workforce in half. Therefore, the work had to slow down. Half the people is not twice the time to work. We all know that, right? They had to be on guard, lest their enemies attack and completely stop the work. They trusted God. They protected themselves. We lock the doors here when we leave for a reason. They had spears. They might as well use them. God's grace to them for protection it was just ordinary human means, the things that they had in their own homes. The people were spread far and wide throughout the entire city as they needed to work together, but they rested in verse 20, saying, Our God will fight for us. They were steadfast together. Together they believed that God would defeat His enemies. 
And they stood on watch and they labored together. And Nehemiah was in the trenches with them. Did you see that? He didn't say, God, protect me or go out and protect me. He participated. And I love this encouragement. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon by his right hand. Nehemiah was with them. Your leaders love to serve alongside you. We don't like some of the things that you don't like to do, but we all get to joyfully do them together. Nehemiah reminds me so much of Jesus in this chapter. And that's our big takeaway. We're not going to start prepping ministry here, but we will help each other if a time arises. But we will also remember Jesus in this passage, that God fights for us. When God's people were suffering in sin, all of us at one point in this room, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to stay in heaven. He didn't say, well, looks like the wrath of God will come on those folks. He didn't pray imprecatory prayers upon us. God judged them, smite them, kill them. Such a sad situation that they will die in their sins. Jesus didn't say any of that. Jesus went to be with his people about 450 years after the account we see here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He died and was buried and rose from the dead. And He fought our battles. He fought with us, not against us. He came to die that we would never need to die ourselves. He came to conquer our enemies of Satan, sin, and death so that we wouldn't have to face them any longer and we would never have to face the wrath of God. That's why we gather. That's why we do all of this together as God's people. And church membership is an important act of faith in response to what God has already done for us. His covenant with us allows us to now covenant with each other, where they work together because God works for them. Where we need each other to work together, to agree together, maybe forfeit a basketball game together. If you're interested in joining this family, this eclectic family, because of God's work in your life, come talk to me. We're adding some new members in a couple weeks at our family gathering. Why wouldn't you join us? It's a command of God's people that if you do believe the gospel, that you should join a local body of believers. Nehemiah was a perceptive leader. He, come, he excuse me, confronted the adversaries head on. Paul describes Jesus' confrontation with his adversaries in Colossians 2. Speaking of Jesus, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we as God's people are saved by God from God. Let me say that again. We're saved by God from God. Where God saves us by the atonement of his own son. That's the by God so that we don't experience any longer the wrath of God, where we are saved from God as well. And Paul exhorts the Corinthian church in light of Jesus' work. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's pretty awesome, right? But Jesus also says, turn the other cheek. If your enemy wants your coat, give him 
it. If he says, walk one mile, go two. We need wisdom, don't we? When do we keep working? When do we submit in the face of opposition? This is not easy. But we must be constantly vigilant. We must be constantly in prayer because we need a lot of wisdom. And I think in 2020, the church was not prepared. And the church has suffered because of it. And so we must continue to pray for wisdom. And guess what? We get to do this together. We get to work together. We get to be steadfast together. We get to be the voice of wisdom to each other. Stand up, or maybe this time you should sit down. But if you do, and it doesn't go well for you, we will be there with you the entire time. Nehemiah is not the type of leader who avoids sweating. He's not the type of leader who spares himself. And Paul, modeling Jesus, wrote this to the Corinthian church. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Those are Paul's words to the Corinthian church, that he would give up everything he had for the sake of that church. Maybe we turn the other cheek so someone else might be spared from the wrath of God. The disciples declared in Acts 4.29 when faced with similar threats, they prayed. They said, O now, Lord, look upon their threat and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Let's pray for that wisdom. The world around us needs Jesus. They don't need us. They don't need our church to exist. They need a Savior. When Paul asked the Colossians church to pray for boldness in the face of his suffering, the brother was in prayer when he wrote this. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Friends, the battles ahead may be hard, but Jesus has won the war. He is victorious, and we will be delivered from the challenges of this world. It might be soon for some of us. It might be a long time for some of us. But recalling those trumpet sounds that the Jews would shout out and say, Hey, here's the battle. Jesus brings a different type of trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed when God fully and completely defeats our enemies. That's when victory will be complete. Jesus has completed the work, church. We can work together because of it. We can be steadfast together because of it, because the Lord has fought and continues to fight our battles. That's a God worth worshiping, is it not? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that at the right time, your son came to die for the ungodly, for us. God, we thank you that your Son bore our sin upon the cross. 
that he was buried, that on the third day he rose from the dead to give us a newness of life. Where we've been delivered from the power of sin, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, but God, we acknowledge that sin's present presence is always and ever before us. And so, God, would you help us to be steadfast? Would you help us to be united, to support one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to encourage one another, if necessary, rebuke one another, so that we might be holy in the face of a crooked and twisted world that we live in? God, would you give us, as Paul said, boldness to speak the gospel to each other, but also to the world around us, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who would believe. There is no other way, God. And so give us boldness to proclaim it. Thank you for the ways in which it has transformed us. And God, we ask that you would be honored in the rest of our time as we worship you for the great and mighty things that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.